passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. G.K. Chesterton was a British uh, writer and poet from the late 1800s, early 1900s. And he was once asked about politics and about government, and he said the following. I think it's pretty profound. He said this. Seemingly from the dawn of man, all nations have had governments, and for that amount of time, all nations have been ashamed of them. I think it's a fairly accurate description of, of how we oftentimes can look at our government. It seems pretty accurate today uh, here in the United States. It doesn't matter who you talk to. It seems like there's one thing that we have in common. That is that we are increasingly frustrated with the gridlock and, and the status quo in Washington. That we want some change and a shakeup there. And that's about where the, the similarities stop. After we look at those similarities, it seems like there are divisions and animosity uh, in basically any and every way between the political left and the political right. And these seem to grow each and every day. In fact, it seems like once, just a couple decades ago, we disagreed with people who had different political views than us. And now we see an increasing demonization, uh, a blaming of all of our country's problems on the other political party. This animosity has really led to this coming November, uh, whether we like it or not. This coming November's election is probably going to be one of the most difficult political decisions uh, facing many of us today. Mr. Trump and Mrs. Clinton are currently polling as two, the two most unlikable candidates in recent U.S. history. So uh, you like our chances there. Um, and we have an increasing apathy with the political system today. But of course, just to make sure the U.S. doesn't feel like it's all alone on this, uh, the, the rest of the world seems to want to make sure that they're not late to the party. Uh, after Great Britain's Brexit vote to leave the European Union a couple months ago, the Atlantic magazine posted this comment. They said this, quote, Great Britain makes America's political problems look like child's play, end quote. So uh, that makes us feel nice and good. At least Britain is struggling as well. Millions in Eastern Europe, in the Middle East, and in Africa, uh, for them, political stability is a distant dream. Billions more in Asia, uh, the freedoms from oppressive governments are just as distant for them. It seems like wherever you go, there is dislike or something that could be better about our political government and systems, no matter what nation you find yourself in. Chesterton seems to be on to something, doesn't he? Now, this tragic laughter, it's a nice coping mechanism, but it doesn't help us improve our conditions. It doesn't help us to uh, make us more hopeful about the future. And honestly, it doesn't cause us to be more faithful to God. And so instead of, of turning our eyes to just this sort of, of dystopian future that we're going to be living in, uh, we should turn our eyes to the Bible. And as we look at the Bible, we've we got to ask the question, does the Bible, which was written for a cultural context far different than today, Today, living in a democratic republic, back then in the first century, written under a dictatorship, and it was an oppressive one at that. Does the Bible have anything to say to us today? And of course, the answer is yes. The Bible has much to say about our political process today, as much to say about our engagement as Christians. And honestly, it is crucial for us to hear. 
It's crucial for us to hear what the Bible has for us when it comes to these topics, these difficult issues, and honestly, to take what it has to say to heart. And that's what we're going to be doing this morning. This morning, just to be completely forward with you, uh, really should be five sermons. So that makes you really, really excited about what's coming. Um, It really should be five sermons because what we're going to do is we're going to look at the broad picture of what the Bible has to say about government, what the Bible has to say about politics, and how we as Christians should be engaged in it. And and instead of of doing that for the next four, five weeks or so, uh, we're going to just do it all in one shot. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to be able to go as deep as we probably should or would want to, uh, but we're going to take this topic and we're going to just look at different facets different ways that the Bible addresses politics and hopefully get us a decent, holistic vision, if you will, of what the Bible has to say when it comes to government. Now, by necessity, we're not going to be able to cover any and every topic that is available or any question that comes up this morning. So if you have questions, there are some passages in your sermon notes. I encourage you to check those out. Um, that we're not going to be going through this morning, not all of them at least, as well as I'm, I'm available after the service to, to talk about these kind of things. Um, so as we, uh, as we transition now, let's pray one more time because um, there's no such thing as too much prayer when it comes to such a difficult issue. So let's pray. God, thank you uh, that you speak to any and every situation that we find ourselves in. And Lord, we confess as we stand before this coming presidential election that we are in desperate need of your guidance, of your wisdom, and of your help. Lord, come, reveal to us what it is that you would have us do as your people. In Jesus' name, amen. I mentioned that we have five facets for us to look at this morning, so we'll just go ahead and jump in. The first facet is this. The Bible gives us principles to guide our voting. The Bible gives us principles to guide our voting. The Bible never tells us how to vote. The Bible never tells us which political party to vote for, which candidate to vote for. But it has a great deal to say about the issues that face us each and every election. It gives us a great deal of truth. And these truths give us principles. They give us values that really should serve as the foundation for our political engagement. We're going to look at three of these, and there are many more, but we just want to look at the three most important for us as Christians, the things that should be the most foundational for us. So the first one is this, human dignity. One of the most important principles, foundations that we see in the Bible when it comes to how we should vote is this, human dignity. The Bible values all human life because all human life is created in the image of God. We've gone over this frequent times in the past weeks. just want to highlight it once more. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Every single one of us here, every single person who has ever lived, will ever live, is currently living on the face of the planet, has been given this image of God. And because we are all created in the image of God, all of us have an infinite value in God's sight and by extension should have that same sort of value in our sight as well. In fact, later on in Genesis, uh, the, the author is describing 
why we should not kill one another. And he says this, God is saying this uh, to Noah. He says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And then this, notice this, for God made man in his own image. Human life is valuable because we are made in God's image. Now this right to life, this human dignity, of course, touches on the issue of abortion. It is good that we touch on that issue as Christians. But the right to life does not just stop there. It does not just stop with the right to life of those who have not yet been born. It has much to say about euthanasia. Much to say about California's new right to die law. It has much to say about the humane treatment of prisoners and enemy combatants has much to say about race relations, has much to say about healthcare, has much to say about the ethical treatment of low-skill workers on the other side of the globe, which affects our economic policy. Human dignity is profoundly important, according to Scripture, and it is the most influential and most influential principle that influences or should influence our voting. So that's the first principle that influences our voting. The second one is this. It's a natural extension of human dignity. It's this. Care for the vulnerable. The Bible, especially the Old Testament, talks all about how we are called to care for the oppressed because God cares for the oppressed. If we look at the Bible, there are really four specific categories of the vulnerable that we are called to care for. He lists, uh, there's really four that are listed. The orphan, the widow, the poor, and the sojourner, or in modern day terms, the immigrant. Zechariah chapter 7 says this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your hearts. Here in this passage, God sums up his calling to do justice for the oppressed. As he's talking to Zechariah, he calls on Zechariah, calls on the people of Israel to care for these four categories. To care for the fatherless or the orphan. To care for the widow or honestly the unwed mother who has no one to take care of her and her children. To take care of the poor. And to take care of the sojourner, which honestly is an Old Testament term for our modern day word, immigrants. In fact, here in Zechariah and other places in the Old Testament, the reason why Israel went into exile is because they neglected the responsibility to care for these people. To provide care for the vulnerable. Now we as Christians, we we do a pretty good job of caring for the vulnerable who are un born. And that's a wonderful, good thing because who is more vulnerable than the unborn? But at the same time, is that conviction coupled with a commitment to care for orphans outside of the womb as well? Christians rightfully protest Planned Parenthood because of its predatory nature toward low-income single women. But is that coupled with a care for the widow? A care for women who were unable and are unable to take care of themselves. This modern day category of single moms. It is good for us to look toward passages in scripture that call on the poor to work. But this view 
uh, care for the vulnerable recognizes that we are called to take care of the working poor, to address structural issues, systemic issues that can help us break the cycle of poverty. And of course, this has great impact and influence on our interactions with immigrants. That doesn't necessitate by any means amnesty. And in fact, that's not what this passage is saying. But at the same time, any sort of immigration plan based off of what the Bible says must account for the worth of every single person who is involved. We as Christians cannot get away from this bedrock foundation of human dignity. And we cannot get away from this call in Scripture to care for the vulnerable. Now, it is your right as a citizen of the United States who who votes to opt for a candidate who looks at these different issues and say, you know what, the government is best equipped to handle these kind of things. That is your right as a private citizen. At the same time, it is your right as a private citizen to say, you know what, it's better handled in the hands of the private citizen. It is better handled in the hands of the church. And that is your right. What is not our right as Christians is to ignore the call to care for the vulnerable. So that's another principle here. The third one is this. The Bible talks much about a right to conscience. Talks much about a right to conscience. As we are committed to human dignity, this commitment necessitates a commitment to the freedom of conscience and the freedom of religion as well. Paul exercises this freedom as he is standing before Agrippa, as he is standing before Festus in Acts 26, where he says, it is my right to believe what I believe. And not only that, but it is my right to exercise and share my convictions with others. This right to conscience, this right to religious freedom is actually uh, implicit throughout all of Scripture. God has created us in His image. And because of that, we are each given rational faculties. We can each think for ourselves. Each of us has a God-given right to think about God the way we want to think about Him. Or honestly, in some cases, to not think about Him. If we take away that right... If we rob this religious liberty or, or lack thereof, it's honestly robbing a person of their personhood, their ability to reflect God as a free person. Of course, this certainly influences court cases that have to do with bakers, with floral shops, with photographers who have been punished for abstaining from same-sex weddings because of their sexual ethics. But at the same time, it also has much to say. The same right extends to Jews, it extends to atheists, it extends to Muslims who are also entitled to belief as they choose as well. Now, that's not saying all religions are equal. That's certainly not what I am saying. But it is saying that each and every one of us has free will. God has created each and every one of us to choose how to think of him and how not to think of him. The times when the church chooses to coerce people into believing the gospel are honestly some of the worst times in church history. The Crusades are a primary example of that. When we tried to coerce people into belief, and it's one of the worst moments in church history. So this is a reminder, not that every way to God is right, but instead that all of us have free will. 
It's also a reminder of the power of the gospel. We don't need to coerce people to believe, but we trust that the gospel is able to change hearts on its own. And it's a reminder that it's not the U.S. Supreme Court that has the final say and judgment in our lives, but ultimately is that there is a great white throne of judgment that all of us will stand before one day. Each and every one of us has a right to believe what we want, a right to our own conscience. And the Bible lists many other principles that should guide our voting, but these three are the most foundational. And honestly, they should cause us to pause and seriously wrestle with candidates and where they stand on these different issues. Do our candidates advocate for a holistic view of human dignity? Do our candidates promote a care for the vulnerable, whatever that looks like, through the government or not through the government? And where do they stand on a right to our conscience, a right to freedom of religion? How we answer these questions should be a good starting place for us this election. So that's the first facet. The Bible gives us principles. Second facet is this. The Bible gives us commands that guide our response. The Bible gives us commands that guide our response. The Bible might not be explicit in who we are to vote for, but it is explicit in how we are to respond to our governing authorities. And so we look at the Bible and we ask the question, how should we then respond? Well, first we see this. As we are commanded in Scripture, we are first to submit for God's sake. We are called to submit for God's sake. First Peter chapter 2 says this, be subject, to, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And then Peter goes on to list different governing authorities. Notice what he says here. Be subject to every institution. That's the command. What is the reason behind the command? Well, he says, for God's sake. When we choose and to submit to those who are over us in authority, we are honoring God. We are doing it for God's sake. We don't submit to people because they are inherently worthy of our submission, although sometimes that may be the case. We don't submit to people because uh, we agree with their political stance and platform, although sometimes that may be the case. We submit to people who are in governing authorities because God calls us to do so. We submit for God's sake. Second command the Bible gives us is this. We submit in God's plan. We submit in God's plan. Romans chapter 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. Paul adds to Peter's command that we don't just submit to honor God. We actually submit because it's part of God's plan. To not submit is actually a, an act of rebellion, a rebellion against God. God is the one who places rulers on their thrones. God is the one who actually ordains elections. And if we are rebellious, if we are dissenting against those who are above us, according to God's plan, we're actually rebelling against God. Here in Romans chapter 13, these governing officials are actually referred to as God's servants. God's ministers, some translations have it. 
It is our calling to submit to those who are above us because it is a part of God's plan. Third is this. We are commanded to have respect for all. Commanded to have respect for all. First Peter chapter 2 again. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. Notice these four commands. Peter is in the midst of talking uh, to the church about how they are supposed to interact with the governing officials, oftentimes those who are bringing about persecution upon them. And he says this, first and foremost, you're supposed to honor everyone. A universal command, everyone is supposed to receive honor because they are created in God's image. Universal command, honor everyone. But then he, he tightens that command and he restricts it and he says, love the brotherhood. So we have a higher calling to those who are Christians, to our brothers and sisters right next to us, that we are called to love them, not just to honor them, but to love them. Then we see an even higher calling, the pinnacle of our calling, and that is to fear God. We are called as Christians to fear God and no one else. And then, one of the most radically countercultural statements that Peter could make here, he ends with the emperor. In the Roman Empire, you were supposed to have the greatest respect for the emperor and the emperor alone. The emperor was oftentimes viewed as a son of the gods. And what does Peter say? Peter says, honor the emperor. Show the exact same respect to the emperor as you would show to any and every person that you come in contact with. This doesn't lower the bar for how we interact with our leaders, but instead it should raise the bar for how we treat everyone else. And unfortunately, I, I, to be honest, I think Christians are pretty bad at this. Christians are pretty bad at this. Some of the most vile, some of the most unchristian things that I can hear about our current president, to be clear, I disagree with him on many different fronts, but some of the most vile things I've heard are coming from the mouths of those who profess Christ. And they oftentimes will explain it away as a joke. Oftentimes they'll explain it away or justify it by saying, well, according to Peter, in our context, we're only supposed to submit to the Constitution. We're only supposed to show respect to the Constitution and not to our governing leaders. That's a terrible excuse. We're not called to excuses. Instead, we're called to repentance, and we're called to respect those that God has placed over us. That doesn't mean that you can't disagree with people. In fact, one of the great privileges of living in our nation is that we can disagree with those who are above us. In fact, we can actively seek to change things because of our government process. But disagreement does not necessitate disrespect. Let us respect those who are above us. Fourth is this. The Bible calls us and commands us to fulfill our responsibilities Romans chapter 13, later on, Paul tells us that we are to pay our taxes, and he doesn't qualify this. He doesn't qualify it by saying, you know, you can pay your taxes, but only if you want to. He doesn't qualify it by saying, you pay your taxes, but only the portion that you approve of that spending. He doesn't say, pay your taxes, but only if your government spends it wisely. If, if so, we probably wouldn't have to pay taxes here in the United States. It's a universal command, pay your taxes. Jesus says the exact same thing in Luke chapter 20. So they, being the Pharisees, asked him, Jesus, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but, but truly teach the way of God. It is, lawful, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? 
But he, being Jesus, perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. As Christians, we are citizens of two kingdoms. We are first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of God, but we are also citizens of the kingdom of man. And as citizens of the kingdom of man, we are called to pay taxes. God says that we are called to pay taxes, but as citizens of the kingdom of God, we are to dedicate our entire lives to God. This is what Jesus is saying when he says that we are to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, to render to God the things that are God's. He says, the things that have Caesar's image on it, or or money, you are to give to Caesar when they ask for it. And the things that have God's image on them, humanity, we are to give to God. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, or pay taxes, and render to God the things that are God's, or dedicate your life to him. So we as Christians are called to fulfill our responsibilities. The final command that we're going to look at this morning is this. Christians are called to intercede in prayer for their governing authorities. Christians are called to intercede in prayer for their governing authorities. Prayer has been called the vocation of the Christian, that we are called to a life of prayer. That's no less true when it comes to those who are above us according to God's plan. First Timothy chapter 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Paul commands us to pray for our leaders, but notice the motivation here. Paul is speaking to Timothy in a world where persecution was common. And his prayer for the, relig- or for the leaders, the governing leaders of that day, is that they would make decisions that lead to the flourishing of God's people. That they would make decisions that lead specifically to the flourishing of his church. How often do we do the same? How often do we pray in the same way? I'm not asking how often do we pray for our leaders in general, but how often do we pray with this sort of motivation that no matter who is in charge, they will make decisions that are for the good of the church. We should pray for their salvation. Yes, Paul mentions that just a few verses later. But here specifically, pray for our leaders, that God would lead them, that they would make decisions that make it possible for us as God's church to flourish and to live peacefully. Pray for your leaders. There are other commands that we can look at, but these honestly are probably hard enough as it is for us. We are called to submit universally, unilaterally. We are called to respect universally, unilaterally. We are called to fulfill our responsibilities to the government, and we are called to prayer. God calls us to respond to those who are in governing authorities. The third facet that we see here is this. Christianity is a political, but not a politicized faith. It is a political, but not a politicized faith. This is what I mean by that. Christianity is undeniably political. It makes some truth claims that are clearly political. It is a story. It is a faith that centers around a king, around Jesus, who is coming to establish his kingdom. 
the beginning of his ministry, Jesus declares that the kingdom of God has come with the start of his ministry. And what is more political than the establishment of a kingdom? Mark chapter 1, Jesus says this. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Christianity is a very political faith. The New Testament is filled with example after example reminding the first century church that Rome is not in charge. God is in charge. A couple years ago, we looked at, uh, on Christmas Eve, we looked at Luke chapter 2, and we looked specifically at the words of the angels to the shepherds. And what we saw was that these words were massively countercultural. They were subversive to the Roman Empire. Every single phrase or or title that was often given to Caesar saying that that his birth was good news, that there was this choir singing praises of Caesar, all of these different things that was supposed to be for Caesar were instead given to describe Jesus. It was massively subversive, massively political, a statement that God is in charge and not the Roman Empire. The book of Revelation is all about this as well. Some people call Revelation the tale of two cities. And the reason is because it's really a a book about the city of, of Babylon and the city of the New Jerusalem and how they are at odds with one another. City of Babylon represents the kingdom of man. In the first century, that specifically was the Roman Empire. And this empire, this kingdom of man, was diametrically opposed to the kingdom of God, to the new Jerusalem. How does the book of Revelation end? The book of Revelation ends with the destruction of Babylon, the coming of the new Jerusalem. Revelation is massively political in its statement. The kingdom of the world will fall, and the kingdom of God will prevail. The Bible is political, and Christianity is a political faith. But at the same time that it's political, it's not politicized. What do I mean by that? In other words, even though it's political, it talks about this kingdom. This kingdom does not spread through force. This kingdom does not spread through force. Jesus never ushered in his kingdom through brute force. It was not ushered in, and it will not be ushered in by a political candidate It will not be ushered in by great political fervor from Jesus' followers. In fact, Jesus does the exact opposite to bring his kingdom to earth. Mark chapter 4, Jesus is asked about his kingdom, and he describes it with these words. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. A mustard seed. What is majestic about a mustard seed? What is it that is, pol- that is powerful about a mustard seed? Nothing. It's exactly the point that Jesus is trying to make. Jesus came as a king. 
Jesus came as the king. Jesus came to establish a kingdom. Jesus came to establish the kingdom. But that kingdom does not come, did not come through political action. It did not come through a revolt against Rome. In fact, in the greatest irony, the greatest paradox of all, it came through death on a cross. And the death of a man for treason. We must remember this as Christians. We must remember this as Christians. We are called to engagement, yes. But we are not called to resort to mere pragmatism or brute force to accomplish our goals. Uh, Crystal and I, just a, a few days ago, we, we started watching um, the television show The West Wing on Netflix. Uh, and maybe you've seen it or not. We, we made it all the way through the first pilot, which is quite the accomplishment when you have a one-year-old. And uh, as we finished the episode, this really stuck out to me. The first episode, so the West Wing is about um, the, the going on. I guess I'm basing this off of one episode, so you can correct me if, if I'm wrong. Um, but it's essentially the goings on of, of the Oval Office and the White House. And apparently there was someone who was a part of the president's uh, communications team that said some rather um, offensive things to Christians. And so he was facing a losing his job, and so they called for a private meeting between this man and this religious group. And this man begins by apologizing and saying, you know what, I'm so sorry about what I said. I was going for a cheap political joke, uh, trying to get some cheap laughs. I, it, was, it was my fault. I, I should have never res- disrespected you that way. Now, the Christian thing in that situation would be to respond with, okay, thank you for apologizing. Now, how can we move forward to make sure this doesn't happen again? Yet the way that these Christians uh, responded was, was actually very anti-Christian, very unchristian, and very, frankly, much like the world. They responded by saying, okay, what are we going to get out of this? What kind of political deal can we make based off of your mistake, based off of the way that you have offended us? Are you going to remove this from schools? Are you going to do this or this or this? And it was just a, a, a shocking contrast between a political faith where we engage and a politicized faith, where we try to use force, where we try to use deals, and try to act exactly like the world to accomplish what we want to accomplish. As Christians, we are not called to copy the world, which honestly is the epitome of of unchristian, but are instead supposed to do what Jesus did. Do so humbly, do so as servants, and engage our political process. Next facet. As Christians, our primary allegiance is to God. Our primary allegiance is to God, and it is also to one another. More than any party, more than any political candidate, more than any country, our allegiance is to God and to his church. First and foremost, our allegiance is to God. Philippians chapter 3. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is their destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory is in their shame. With minds set on earthly things, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things 
to himself. Our allegiance is primarily to God because our first and primary citizenship is not to the United States, but to God and in heaven. In the book of 1 Peter, Peter is talking about uh, us as Christians and the way we are supposed to live in the world, and he describes us as exiles. In other words, that we are out of place. The United States is not our true home, that we should expect to feel out of place here. We should not expect or place our hope in a political candidate or a political party, but instead in Jesus and his return. Our allegiance is to God, but our allegiance is also to one another, to the church. I would venture a guess that this uh, election season is going to lead to the most diverse response from the church when it comes to voting, most, most diverse outcomes from Christians when it comes to the voting process. There are three men that I just want to draw attention to briefly, three men that I greatly respect, three men that I think are faithful Christians, and I believe that they are being faithful uh, to God, and they are being led in actually three different ways this political season. They've been very public about their political decisions. First is Wayne Grudem. Many of you may know Wayne Grudem as the person who wrote the over a thousand page systematic theology book that some people just use as a doorstop. It's very big, very evangelical, very wonderful book. He recently published a blog post where he lists some rather compelling reasons why he's voting for Mr. Trump. There's one view. Another man named Tabidi Anabwile. Uh, he is a uh, pastor, a church planter in Washington, D.C. Uh, he is a part of the Nine Marks uh, group of pastors, which is a very conservative, very traditional and evangelical uh, group of pastors. And he has published a blog post recently, a little less recently than, than Mr. Grudem, where he says that he is voting for Hillary Clinton. And he lists his reasons for doing so. And, and again, they're somewhat compelling. And then there's a third man. Uh, his name is Russell Moore. Russell Moore is the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission for the Southern Baptist denomination. Wonderful evangelical who spends most of his time in Washington working alongside politicians to make sure and pr- try to protect our religious freedoms as Christians. And his response is to vote third party. Three men love and honor God, three radically different outcomes. And I would venture a guess that here today we might have some sort of similar diversity. Now, I'm not saying that all three of these are correct. Indeed, they cannot all three be correct. That just doesn't make sense. But I do believe that each and every one of them is trying to live out their convictions as Christians to honor God the best way that they know how this election season. And I would venture a guess that each and every one of us is trying to do the exact same thing. We may be led to different conclusions, but we are trying to honor God to live out our Christian convictions the best way that we know how. And with that in mind, this is the perfect time to remember that we have a unity in the Holy Spirit that is greater than our political differences. Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus when he says this, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, 
with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. At the end of the day, we may disagree with one another on our conclusions to, on who to vote for this year. We may think that those who are sitting right next to us are making serious errors on who they choose to vote for. We may need to dialogue with one another and try to correct one another. But we must do so in humility. We must do so with gentleness. We must do so with charity, trying to understand the reason why people are making the political decisions that they are making. And above all, we must maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace here in the church. Because our primary allegiance is to God and to one another. The final facet, a bit of a cliche these days, but I think it's important mentioning. God is completely in charge of the world affairs. God is completely in charge of world affairs. It's important for us to remember, no matter how many times we've heard it. First, God is ruler over the benevolence. God is ruler over the good. He uses flawed people to bring about good for his people and for humanity as a whole. Next week, we're going to be back in Genesis. As we turn to Genesis, we're going to be looking at the story of Joseph and what a perfect example of God using someone to bring about good and human flourishing for the majority of the world's population. God is ruler over the good, over the benevolent, the good things that happen to his people. Same thing is true of Esther. God appointed her to her position to protect the Jews under the Persian Empire. Even the same thing with Cyrus, a man who is described as God's anointed one in the book of Isaiah. Cyrus was a pagan Persian ruler. He's called God's anointed one because he brings about the end of the exile for the people of Israel. This is a time of flourishing for God's people. So in one sense, when we say God is in charge, God is in charge of the benevolent, of the good that happens to us and to our nation. But at the same time, God is also in charge or over the malevolent. God is in charge of the bad things that happen to our nation, the the evil that we see happening in the world. God uses the wicked to accomplish his purposes and to even draw us nearer to the new heavens and the new earth. Oftentimes, this comes through judgment. Oftentimes, this comes through the destruction of nations. In the book of Jeremiah... Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, is described over and over and over again as God's servant. This is a man who was leading the destruction of Israel, of God's people, and Jeremiah calls him God's servant. The book of Habakkuk says something very similar. It's talking about the the fall of Israel and, excuse me, of Judah to the Babylonian empire. God is using the wicked, the Babylonians, to bring about judgment upon his people. God is over the good, yes, but God is also over the bad. God is completely and utterly in charge. And how important is that for us to remember today? God is in charge of what we face God is in charge of the things that we encounter. God is in charge this November, no matter who is elected. God is in charge.
That's a brief survey of what the Bible has to say about government, about political engagement for us today in a democratic republic. It gives us principles that should influence our voting. It gives us commands on how we're to respond to those who are in political positions. It reminds us that Christianity is political, but it is not politicized. It reminds us of our primary allegiance to God and our primary allegiance to one another. And it reminds us that God is in charge. But what does it say about this election? Specifically, this election coming up November 2016, what does the Bible have to say about that? Simply this, and this is going to be very underwhelming for you, and I don't apologize for that. It says this, as with all of life, let us honor God with our political involvement. As with all of life, let us honor God with our political involvement. To be completely 100% honest, I don't feel confident saying anything more than that because this just too many gray areas, too many difficult decisions facing us for a a simplistic me standing up here and saying this is how you should vote. I I personally have have convictions uh, of how I'm going to vote, and I'm I'm intentionally not sharing them this morning because I don't want to take what I see as the best and most proper response to this election and impose it upon what the Bible says. I just want to give us a beautiful, or not, maybe it wasn't beautiful. I want to give us a picture of the beautiful Bible and what it has to say about elections, about our government and this entire process. That's not saying I don't have an opinion. I certainly do so, but I don't think it's my place as a pastor to share those up here. As a, as a private citizen, absolutely, but not as a pastor. There are going to be many different responses here when it comes to November, there's going to be many different ways that people respond and, and try to vote. But however you vote, I just, I hope and pray that you would try to honor God with whatever you do. Do so with a good conscience. Do so in a way that is prayerful. Do so in a way that, that honors God, that you seek his face in the midst of it. And I think there are five tangible ways for us to honor God this, this political season. Briefly, this is how we're going to close. First, pray. Just pray. My goodness, we need to pray. Get on your knees. Pray that God would, would uh, that a God-honoring person would be elected. But even more than that, because it doesn't look like that's going to be the case, uh, honestly, uh, more, just pray. Whoever is elected, it, it leads to the flourishing of the church. It leads to a possibility and the opportunity for Christians to live at peace. Just as Paul describes in 1 Timothy chapter 2, pray for a candidate that would allow the church to flourish. Second, respond with respect. Respond with respect. No matter what happens in November, we are called to respond with respect. It doesn't matter if it's Mrs. Clinton. It doesn't matter if it's Mr. Trump. It doesn't matter if it's someone else. The Christian duty is to pray, and the Christian duty is to show respect to those that that Romans chapter 13 describes as, as God's servants. Pray, respect. Third is this, engage. Engage. We live in a democratic republic. That means that we have a wonderful privilege that countless Christians in history past and currently today in the world do not have. We get a say in how we are governed. So be engaged in the political process. Be sure to go and vote. But remember that our faith is not a politicized faith. 
Your engagement should not be through brute force. It should not be through an ends justify the means sort of pragmatism, but it should be through humility, and it should be through service. Fourth, hope. Hope. Have some hope. Whatever happens to the United States, our hope is not in the future of this country. It is in the future of the kingdom of God. A wise mentor once told me, they, they pointed out that in order for the new heavens and the new earth to come, every nation on the face of the earth, including the United States, has to fall. Every nation on the earth, including the United States, has to fall in order for God's kingdom to fully arrive. That might sound unpatriotic. I'm sorry if, if that, that's the way it come acro- comes across. I'm thankful for the country I live in. I think it's a good country. But I would much rather forsake the good in order to receive the best. Hope. Place your hope in an unconquerable hope that is found not in the kingdom of man, but in the kingdom of God. And fifth and finally, unite. Unite. Let us maintain unity in the midst of our difficult and different political decisions, in the midst of our disagreement. There's a place for debate. There's a place for discussion. There's a place for disagreement. But there is no place to break fellowship. There is no place to break fellowship In fact, here in just a few moments, we're going to celebrate that unity that we have in Christ. We're going to celebrate it in the Lord's Supper. Communion is a time to remember and commemorate our communion with God, yes, but it's also to remember our communion with one another. It's a time to remember our allegiance to God, but also our allegiance to each other. So let us unite and remain united as a church this political season. Friends, I pray that you would honor God political season, this election season. You might make a different decision than me, might have different convictions than I do, and that's completely fine. But let us honor God whatever we decide to do. Let us unite in the hope that will never fail us, and that is in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, we are so humbled by the thought that you have established a kingdom, that you have adopted us into this kingdom as your sons, that even as Paul says in Colossians, that we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved son. God, I pray that that would be where our hope lies, that we would trust in you, place our confidence in you. God, as we are faced with some very difficult decisions coming up, we ask for your help We ask for your wisdom. And Lord, we pray that whatever comes in November, it would lead to the flourishing of your people, to the flourishing of your church, that we might be able to live peaceably. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.